I will shamelessly admit, I don't listen to that many podcasts. Um, Excuse you. Hi, and welcome to Good Is In The Details. I am your host, Gwendolyn Dolsky, and this is the second podcast I'm doing from DC from the Diverse Lineages of Existentialism Conference. And today with me, Jake Jackson of Temple University, he gave a paper called Existentialism, Mood Disorders, and Moody Responsibility. Hello. Hi. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for having me on this. Oh, thanks for agreeing to this. So we met a while back, and I was intrigued by your work on psychiatry and existential, or on philosophy. Okay. Yeah. Would you say that your work has an existentialist question? Is existentialism helpful to your question about psychiatry? That's what I mean. Yes. The way that I usually tell the story about how I got into philosophy in general is that existentialism ruined my life. Okay. Uh, at least in the sense of trying to think through things or realizing really the, like reading the myth of Sisyphus and then and ruining so my life in the sense with of... Starting with Camus? Yeah. Okay. Ruining my life in the sense of uh, realizing that I had to keep living it because that's been sort of an ongoing issue. So inherently in, in the beginning of as an 18-year-old freshman, just already thinking about existentialist questions and that never dropped away. And then I ended up doing philosophy of psychiatry sort of backwards, where I was going to therapy and treating, dealing with my own issues with depression and anxiety, and realized that philosophy at a mainstream doesn't really know how to talk about anxiety and depression, or just refuses to. But then sort of found that existentialists really work on these sorts of questions, right? The questions of despair and anxiety. What do you do about the fact that sometimes you think a little too much about the fact that you're going to die or suicidal ideation or something like that? So I'm trying specifically to work out an ethics that takes existentialism as an application to talk about mood disorder, the experience of mood disorder, and what do you do to live an ethical or responsible life when overwhelmed or just awash with different uncontrollable emotions. So you say you started with Camus and the myth of Sisyphus. And how do you work out an ethics? This is something that I've struggled with in my own work, is defending that there is an ethics in existentialism, even though they reject an order or a law. How do you work that out? So part of it is that I think that by the very, like, this is going to sound quasi-Foucauldian, I guess, or like that sort of like punchy Foucault-type thing, but because we're talking about disorder, because we're talking about something that is disordered, outside of order, or sort of like order is used as a tool to then push out those who don't necessarily fit in, I think that existentialism, in its rejection of some sort of rigid ontological order or deontological order, is explicitly very helpful for that. What is something that we had talked about before, a misconception or let's say about mood disorder. And the reason why I'm asking this is because I remember you explicitly saying how frustrating it was that let's say after Robin Williams died and that his depression was talked about that that was part of his genius. And you had made the comment, you said, it's not a superpower. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So the reason that I fell into or started doing uh, philosophy of psychiatry itself was because when 
Robin Williams committed suicide, one of the major things that happened was just everyone had their own opinion specifically about him or that was because, and this happens a lot with celebrity suicides. We saw this again last year with uh, Anthony Bourdain, oh, yeah. but all of that sort of idea of saying, well, this is a, uh, this is a suicide that affects me. And now I have to talk about it and talk about maybe the keys to the destruction or the, the sort of hint of destruction was there but that was that was the thing that we that was actually what made a certain person brilliant or great russell brand himself wrote a really really insensitive op-ed when robin williams died to say oh well it was divine madness it was it was a gift to us it was a gift the fact that robin williams struggled and that struggle led to him being extremely funny was a gift to us now granted it's hard to really pair out for Robin Williams or for others, the sense of creativity and that sense of darkness. But that doesn't mean that that's something that, that is a gift or a superpower. But at the same time, there are certain elements, and I think that this is something that works specifically within mood disorders and specifically within depression itself. There is a sense of insight that still happens within delusional experiences, right? Delusional feelings of depression or delusional ex experiences. And by delusional, I just mean not a, a fair assessment of the world okay. or something like that to say that someone is despairing or something like that. Uh, we often imagine that that's exaggerated or that it, it's not tied to a particular thing in the world. But at the same time, there is an insight there. And so part of my dissertation talks about how the sense of guilt within depression or that can be a symptom of depression or a criteria of depression can at least tap into a deeper and richer sense of uh, moral responsibility between oneself okay. and others. The depression that you're speaking of that is clinical, that is quite serious, a mood disorder, as opposed to somebody experiencing a bout of, let's say, sadness, would that yeah. be fair? Or yeah. How would we describe that? What is you know, depression light. I don't know yeah. what to call yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so, so we even can, that we're afraid of, right? Yeah. Um, so we can talk about like a comparison between major depression or like major depressive disorder or depressive episode and a difference between something that's more an intentional sadness. So intentional as an in intentionality intended towards an object or something about something makes you sad. And on the latter half of that, a lot there's a exclusion within the DSM that you can have all of the major criteria for depression, but if it's about grief or bereavement, if it's the sense that you've lost someone, if it's grief, then it's not a mental disorder. Because and the idea behind that is that it's more intentional. It's more intentional to a particular loss or something like that, and that's something that we see as well in major life changes, uh, moving, divorce death in the family, other major... Financial illness. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what I'm wondering is that because this type of despair, that maybe what the existentialists did talk about, that that is a normal part of existence, that because yeah. everyone does experience that, does that make it harder for somebody to be sensitive to when it is outside the norm? So when somebody who's outside the norm with a mood disorder saying, I'm depressed, and somebody else who has experienced being depressed, let's say from grief, doesn't say just snap out of it. Yeah. That that contributes to, because there's that being depressed is part of the human condition. That's something we all experience, but you're talking about a radically different experience that might actually block the dialogue 
the average person from understanding what, let's say, somebody like Robin Williams was going through or Anthony Bourdain, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, so so the idea between the difference between a, regu- a like regular sadness, and I put as much emphasis or sort of stress on the word regular uh, just because I'm not like normalcy seems odd, but situational sadness, we'll say, okay. right? Versus this depression. The difference is that when the situation improves, the sadness lifts okay. up and then you're out of that. Yeah. You're out of that dark time, right? I think we're even hesitant to experience sadness at all. Yes. Like you're not supposed to yeah. when actually it can, even that level of sadness can allow for some insight and reflection. And we're so afraid of it. And then yeah. that even distances us from having a discussion about a mood disorder. Yeah. And I think that that's something that allows for a large amount of, uh, say, hermeneutical silencing or, or other forms of silencing that where we just don't we don't want to talk about any any emotion that's not happiness or anger or then only justified anger or what yeah. we think is like a respectability form of, of anger or something like that. But sadness, sadness is only allowed to be public when it's grieving or mourning a loss. You're not allowed to be sad just sometimes. And that ends up doing a lot of damaging work in terms of further stigmatizing mental illness and sort of undermining human beings. And so part of the dissertation or the the main argument of the dissertation is that since there's no allowance for public emotion or, or for people to have emotion or to be honest about their emotion, with that sort of phenomena of just being silent about emotion in general or mm-hmm. not really explaining how you're supposed to live with your feeling, right, on top of a lack of consensus, both scientific and cultural, of what and a constant debate. Uh, when it comes to the cultural level about what mental illness is and what it isn't mm-hmm. uh, and how to treat it, all of those factors and, and sort of this cacophony of too many voices on what mental illness is and how you're supposed to live with your feelings or how you're supposed to bottle that up and things like that. What that does is it leaves individuals with mood disorders what I call epistemically adrift, that they don't know how to live a good life or an ethical life, because it's something that they end up being something unable to really relate to others, or unable to relate to others who seem happy, are happy, and unable to then figure out how to process that and move forward with their life in any sort of meaningful way. Very similar, uh, there's this notion from Sarah Ahmed's work, particularly out of The Promise of Happiness, where she talks about affect aliens, where someone is surrounded by people who feel a certain way about something, but realizing that they don't, either that they are incapable of joy or incapable of the sadness that other people feel, which happens with anhedonia, the lack of pleasure, or the lack of feeling mm-hmm. uh, that often comes with depression, where it's not just sadness, but, but sort of an absence or a lack that that sort of accentuates the problem itself, right? To yeah. see that there are other people that can access happiness or can access sadness in grief or can access anything else, and they feel nothing, right? So when we think about a mood disorder, we think about the field of psychiatry. Yeah. What does philosophy have to offer this question? Overall, what psychiatry does today is it looks at the mind, it looks at the subject, 
as if it's just merely an object. Mm -hmm. it, it reduces and objectivates experience. So the DSM, the Di Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, which is currently in its five, uh, fifth iteration, so it's the DSM-5, what the DSM-5 does is it just gives a laundry list of what experience is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't explain to you how to live a meaningful life with that. It doesn't okay. explain to you how exactly you live a life that makes sense. It's merely just sort of a, a way of, of listing possible scenarios. Psychiatry as well has a, a heavy reliance these days on psychopharmacology, which it does have its merits. It, there's a very careful line that I want to I, I want to toe in which I think that drugs are overall over prescribed, but also at the same time they do have a certain amount of efficacy. And there are plenty of capitalistic notions in terms of why they're overprescribed and also just the issues of not having suitable health care and mental health care that can affect the individual on the ground besides handing out pills. Like yeah. That's the easiest and quickest way to, to sort of normalize behavior at yeah. the very least, even though it causes for more concern, uh, concerns. You're reminding me of Prozac Nation. Did you ever? Yeah. Yeah. So that sort of, that sort of idea of it's a temporary solution in yeah. a lot of cases. The real trouble is that when it comes to efficacy of, say, SSRIs, right, the, mm -hmm. the major sort of antidepressant, what that is supposed to do is allow for serotonin to reuptake and, and, and allow for a larger amount of, of serotonin. But that's based on a premise that isn't necessarily fully fleshed out in terms of a method. But additionally, sometimes they work, and it'll be that for some individuals, they will work. For other individuals, a different drug will work that is very similarly built, and nobody knows why, right? Okay. Why it, so, so say like Zoloft versus Prozac or versus another, right? Just each different chemical brand will have its own sort of way of working for particular minds. And really, this is the thing that neuroscience has discovered since, is that everyone's brain has its own sort of plasticity and it, has, and it develops its own pathways, which means that nothing is one size fits all. Just, like no one, there's no one size fits all depression and therefore there's no one size fits all drug. So you can take a couple of months to try to acclimate to one particular SSRI, find out that it doesn't help, and then switch to another one, and then find that that one does help, and then switch to another one and find that maybe that'll work better. But there's no certainty at any point. And that's part of the reason why it becomes very frustrating to try and, and say, uh, how do you deal with your depression? Because it's something that all the projects in terms of or all the ways in which you can try to take steps to better your experience of depression is contingent on putting in a lot of effort and time and trial and error. But one of the fundamental conditions within the or fundamental symptoms of depression is that it saps your motivation to try new things or to sustain yes. with things, right? So it's something that is resistant to its treatment all the time. There seems to be a growing picture in pop culture of mood disorders. I'm yeah. just wondering if there is a depiction that you think they got it right or a depiction where you think, oh my God, this is ridiculous what they're doing. They're way off base. 
So again, it's something where there are many, many different types of depression. Everyone, uh, even within the, the DSM category, right? It's that you have either either prolonged sadness for two weeks or anhedonia, so of an absence of feeling or of absence of pleasure and things that you used to find pleasurable for two weeks or more. Okay. For whatever reason, it's two weeks uh, as the threshold. They had right? to come up with the yeah. with the date. Arbitrary. Okay. It's all a lot of it's arbitrary. Okay. Right. But then then you have to have five of a handful of other categories, um, which includes weight issues, like dietary and weight issues, sleep issues, suicidality, or just obsession with death. Then also feelings of guilt or worthlessness and differences in, in energy levels and things like that and motivation and also uh, focus or clarity of mind, which means that everyone, there's so many, it's a big umbrella for what depression is. And uh-huh. it's a big umbrella for all sorts of other uh, mental disorders as well, because it's really just trying to capture as much within a certain cluster okay. of, of symptoms, which means that, yes, there are plenty of good depictions of, of depression. What's an there. example of one? Bojack Horseman. <laughs> Bojack Horseman's my favorite. Okay. Um, I actually uh, I dressed it. up as Bojack Horseman uh, for Halloween and taught classes. Wait, what is him. Bojack? He's a cartoon. He's a he's a depressed cartoon horse. <laughs> that's on Netflix. Okay, um, I, won't, I won't check. Yeah, I yeah. Know, um, I don't even know what to say. Yeah. What he, about something like Girl Interrupted? Uh, Girl Interrupted. Um, <laughs> I never saw the film. I read the memoirs, and that's that's helpful. But that also is is steeped within psychosis, right? So it's not it's not just the depression, but it's also yeah. psychosis. That and one flew over the cuckoo's, cuckoo's nest. Those are the two things that come to my mind. I'm trying yeah. to think. There must be yeah. other things. Yeah, uh, bel- the bell jar is great. Oh yeah, uh, the bell jar is, is fantastic, and yeah. that's that's something that's semi autobiographical for Plath. Um, Can you see one more question? This in, in terms yeah. of pop culture. We're seeing more and more discussions in Hollywood and in script writing about yeah. inclusivity yeah. or diversity. Could yeah. you ever see that mental illness is part of that equation? That I, it's not just about ethnicity and gender or, let's say, a physical uh, disability, yeah. but that it is about a mental illness. Yeah, I do see that that's happening. I do see really? that there is a there is an increase in in frank discussions of mental illness across and it's something where it's not just like the problem with reading memoirs and novels is that it's typically affluent uh white people that have that's that also point. have have written it at a moment of recovery, which doesn't discredit the amount of suffering that that we see, right? Okay. But at the same time, it's something where I hadn't thought of that. You're right. Yeah, it's something where it, we only see a, a particular lens of of what mental illness looks like. We are starting to see a little bit more um, in terms of discussions of memoirs that are written by people of color, uh, memoirs that are written by people in different professions. But it becomes extremely hard to actually have these legitimated voices out there. That is really interesting because you're right. To get to a point to be able to talk about it means that, as you say, you can afford the recovery. Oh, geez. You've survived. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. And there are plenty of people who don't. And this is something where, yeah, most of the narratives of mental illness that we see 
are either sort of written from the outsider perspective. Uh-huh. So it's it often is something like even even Ken Casey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the way that that got used was actually a, a vast condemnation of psychiatry at large. We are supposed to, like, there's a sense in which Casey's description of, of Bull Goose Randall is just sort of uh, he's he's sort of a malingerer right he's mm-hmm. he's sort of just faking it he's just a rebel without a cause type situation and then the narrator within the novel right the narrator within the novel is actually the chief who says that he's faked his silence right mm-hmm. he's it, he plays off as being a mute and between and between that and the condemnation of nurse ratchet who is just literally just doing her job with the science and and medicine that that they had at the time she's vilified completely which uh, there's a whole gendered aspect to that as well but it's this idea that that sort of played into the anti-psychiatry movement and actually did a major disservice to anyone trying to see whether or not their mental disorder was legitimated for themselves uh, because they saw that and if they saw the film it's just kind of dudes hanging out and being like weird with one another but that's it now i'm going to reread it yeah now i'm going to be looking at it plus plus, the narrator the chief is a child rapist that we're supposed to (laughs) we're supposed to to just assumed to be okay like that's the we're we're, oh we're on board God. with him and his viewpoint of the world okay okay uh, another another depiction can uh, you think of something okay so else? better this depictions better depictions well, he, or it can or, be anyone because i'm interested in either your praise or critique a lot of them are very selfish right and they they take this idea of like sort of reprieving themselves from moral responsibility because they have a sad Right? Okay. Because they're depressed, they are saying, okay, so I'm going to actually now say that, that none of the things that I, I did are out of depression or are things that, that made it, like, I don't belong to this or like this, you can't blame me for this. And that's in a lot of memoirs. And really... Uh, what do you mean by moral? Taking responsibility for, for one's actions. And the way that we talk about mental illness at large is this idea that perhaps the person who has a mental disorder isn't a full agent, right? They don't necessarily have agency. And a lot of people will play into this. And this is part of the reason why I I like uh, talking about things in terms of existentialism. Yeah. Is that I think that anytime that someone says, this is a major problem, I think, with the way that social media has taken this up. And this is what I call the the Tumblrification of the Tumblrification of, of mental illness is that a lot of people will grandstand and say, well, because I have this disorder, that means that you can't blame me for okay. this. And it's true that you can't blame them necessarily for, for behavioral patterns or things like that. But that doesn't mean that they then can say, I'm not going to work on fixing this. I see. And that we see a lot in, in sort of the full memory of it all, right? Memory. This is great. Um, the full memory of mental illness sort of... It, if it's not careful, right? And this is, uh, I'm, I, I don't want to condemn memes all, all together because, oh man, I love depression memes. Okay. But at the same time, there are plenty that say like, I'm not going to get better. I'm just uh. not going to do it. I'm just going to let myself destroy myself and, and everyone's going to just watch and builds up on that sort of sense of just bad faith and nihilism of saying that really I can't, there's nothing to be done about me. Uh, All right. I see. That's interesting. That's what I was wondering about. I see we're coming with the the definition of moral. So, and I see why you're using existentialism because I can 
see that a lot of moral theories have to do with the way in which one treats the other, um, whereas where you're starting about, it, it can be with, uh, the way in which one understands oneself is towards oneself and toward the other. Okay, that's really interesting. Just to back up. The tumblerification. Yeah. The tumblerification. And then what did you call the meme? And the memory of it all. The memory of it all. Yeah. I love it. I like uh, introvert memes. Those are the best for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people. That's what I'll start. I'll start looking at like yeah. this is genius. I love yeah. these introvert yeah. memes. I'm never gonna speak to another person again. I'm just gonna <laughs> gonna wear a nice hoodie and just like burrow in and exactly read a book. When you were, I'm I'm curious. So when you were giving your talk, okay, yeah. just a reminder: existentialism, mood disorders, and moody responsibility. Yeah. Uh, what was the feedback like? It was actually pretty positive. I so the talk itself was an attempt. At a panoramic view of sort of the underlying assumptions of the of the dissertation itself. Okay. So, which meant that I just I rushed through a lot of things, and one of the final things that I put out is and something that I'm still trying to work out is what would a virtue the- uh, an existentialist virtue theory of mood disorder look like? Where it's something That's a really great project. It, it, where it's some. Uh, this is supposed to be the final chapter of my dissertation, which means that it's it's a lot of hand waving and panicking. Of, of <laughs> no, no, hear me out. This is what it is. Uh-huh. And there was a little bit of challenge of that of how dare you or or uh, I don't know. There was a question that came off as if it was saying how dare you come up with rules. And I'm resistant to rules. And I'm resistant. I'm a very bad virtue theorist in the sense that I think the virtues are kind of silly but i'm still trying to do it most of what i do is self-defeating i guess but i guess <laughs> i guess that's the depression perhaps we can have non-universal virtues that are more reactive than anything else and i include this idea of so maybe they're just guidelines as opposed to virtues but i do think that they do sort of follow along a spectrum of a deficiency and excess okay so the question of being open and honest to give honest testimony of how one is feeling to others, which, you know, you can do too little of and not speak speak to anyone and just bottle it up and ruin yourself even further. Or you can overindulge, too vulnerable and too out there, be way too, uh, and just sort of like become this this word vomit of of here's everything that I feel. And then... This word vomit. Yeah, (laughs) which... which, in my recent life of, of, of now trying to discover dating, I have done that where it just word vomit feelings and then that doesn't work. Um. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, does your virtue theory, which yeah. it sounds like you're not using the traditional virtues, but you are yeah. using the framework of yeah. excess and deficiency. Yeah. Does that include a movement towards Aristotle's idea of eudaimonia or no? Did you cut that out? Or that's the problem in terms of trying to talk about a virtue theory for me- mental disorder is that mental disorder sort of blocks happiness. Like, okay. like unless if unless if we we have like a very sort of like what exactly is flourishing then? Because it's within depression, a lot of people would say that that, and this is why oh, there's okay. a problem within really moral philosophy. This is the problem within moral okay. philosophy is that a lot of moral philosophers will say, I don't want to talk about mental disorder. I don't want to talk about depression because that threatens the, the very conception of eudaimonia. Okay. 
So the, the way that I envision this is that it's not a question of eudaimonia. It's not a question of happiness. It's not a question because that you can be happy enough. We swap it out for excellence. Yeah. Does you, that work or no? Excellence, maybe. You can be happy enough, right? And that's sort of the idea of it. And really, it's that I, right, happy enough or try to be happy in some way that, that works. My idea is that you have maybe two prongs or combine two prongs. Uh-huh. Uh, for, instead of eudaimonia, worry about authenticity okay. and safety. Authenticity, that would definitely be an existentialist yeah, idea. Yeah, okay. exactly. So authenticity in terms of the thing that I said earlier of, okay. of open testimony and also... What do you mean by safety? I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Okay. So, so, so the things that, that have to do with authenticity, so there's open testimony and being honest with one's feelings. There's also the sense of getting to know what exactly, like, as best as you can. And again, it's something where there's just too much information and too many conflicting sort of ideologies about mm-hmm. what mental illness is. So you have this question of trying to figure out as much as you can about what the condition is. If you have and unfortunately, diagnosis is is either a privilege or it comes out of like a against one's will. Like either you have the money to go to a psychiatrist and get a diagnosis or you've been arrested and you have to get committed and then they give you a diagnosis. Okay. But try to find out as much as you can, which, of course, is steeped within the question of privilege and and education and things like that. And that's, I think, is part of the authenticity and and also a little bit of the safety in, in terms of how to take care of yourself. There's also an authenticity in the sense of not believing that not uh, perpetuating suffering just because one person is miserable or has has depression is miserable at times is suffering and things like that that doesn't mean that that's something that needs to be pushed out to everyone else because that's something that it's sort of under the de Beauvoir sense of for me to be free then I have to will all others to be free I'm not going to just just because I went through a particular trauma doesn't mean that other people have to as well to understand the world. Oh, right? I see what you that mean. Idea, yes, yes. Right? right? Don't perpetuate it. Don't make don't make it about this question of like making people suffer just because you also have suffered, which yeah. is is kind of an initial reaction for a lot of people mm-hmm. with depression or anxiety or like other disorders is that if I had to deal with this trauma, you need to also bring I need to bring you down into this as well. This sort of like self, like I'm going to destroy everyone and everything around me. That sort of nihilism. Don't do that, right? Okay. We've uh, that's another. We have an actual yeah. rule then. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But the, uh, yeah. What else? Um, so don't protect, open testimony, don't perpetuate suffering. Don't take oneself on as this sort of bad faith thing of like, I'm either a walking disaster or I don't deserve good things, right? Or also like the perpetual victim sort mm-hmm. of stereotypes to say like, oh, woe is me, look at me, please pity me, for the love of God, please pity me. Don't do that. And that's something that I think as well is under the, the auspice of authenticity as well. And then uh, in terms of safety, I think question of self-care. And I really want, like, I, I don't like the, again, the tumblerification of, of self-care or the memory of self-care that we have to spend a lot of money and then that's the way that you, you do it. Or you just, like, claim that anything where you shirk responsibility for anything whatsoever is self-care, right? Yeah. I'm not going to go to work today because I'm going to – or you do need a mental health care day at some point. But, like, there's a culture – there's that culture of self-care. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. For me, self-care is yeah. when I indulge in a really good – 
mystery book and I just let myself yeah. do that. Yeah. Or, or go somewhere where I haven't been before. Yeah. But you're right. This idea of um, spending money and then yeah. that is going to be the self-care yeah. for something that's superficial that doesn't last. It yeah. just doesn't work. But also like self-care can be like that sort of idea of this is a meme that I saw out there is fake self-love or trick yourself into self-love by pretending that you do for a moment. Right. Mm -hmm. Or for as long as you do until you actually do it. That sort of thing. So self-care in the sense of making sure that one. Pascal says that in terms of faith. You just reminded me of that. Yeah. yeah. Act like like you believe and then eventually you will believe. Act like you love yourself until until it happens. It's like a self-reflexive Pascal's wager. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So Um, I'm sorry. Go on. What were you saying? And like self-care can be just the mundane things of like make sure that you shower or make sure that you get like get out of bed or make sure that you do something that you actually enjoy. Yeah. Right. Uh, Or like try to figure out a way that you enjoy things, which also can include that sort of like the thing where people do spend entire days inside and they Mm -hmm. allow themselves to do that. Right. That's actually a good thing. Like a depression nap is a really good thing. (laughs) It feels awful while you do it, but then eventually you refresh and uh, like give into it a little bit. And again, that means that it's a virtue and that means in a virtue in the sense that it needs phronesis and it needs a little bit of exacting in terms of trying to figure out what the right right thing is to do at a given point. And then the other thing, this is the safety thing, or like this is the par excellence for safety, or like the apotheosis of the safety concern for replacing eudaimonia, is what I call survivalism. And this is something, again, I think that these are virtues that don't necessarily apply to the mainstream, because to survive or to persevere or to just hang on is not something that most people worry about. Uh, yeah. in, in fact, like needing to survive, that just seems like a precondition to living a good life. Right? For, one doesn't have to be aware of it. Yeah, But for those, and this is the one where I'm going to have a little bit of flack with uh, when it comes to discussions of autonomy and suicide. When it comes to suicidal feelings, sometimes... If the person has this or self-harm or something like that, a lot of times the person has this idea that this is the thing that they want or this is the thing that they must have. And I don't really know how to speak on that. I've been working on projects on and off of suicide ethics for the last 10 years, I realize. And I've never been able to crack it exactly where I stand on it. But the general idea that I have is that there's the question of of surviving. If someone is dedicated to the idea of wanting to be a good person outside of the situation of, say, like Sidney Carton at the end of Tale of Two Cities, where he says it's a far, far better thing I do now, Mm -hmm. right, where he effectively commits suicide in order to save people. Those situations have to, those happen on occasion. But really, for the most part, if if you're committed, and maybe this is what the whole idea or the whole dissertation is, that chapter is, is hinged upon, is this idea of saying... If I, as someone who has depression or anxiety or some other mood disorder or some other diagnosis that includes affective problems, am trying to be a good person out of that, then part of that has to be combating the feeling of suicide, combating the the feeling of uh, self-harm or self-destruction, mm-hmm. right? And that can come in so many ways. The one thing that I think is kind of the smarter reaction to this, if I'm going to co-opt one quote, for this one like moody virtue is there's a comedian by the name of Maria Bamford who's very up upfront about her uh, struggle with mental health and she has this great line whatever you do stay alive 
even mm-hmm. if it's just for spite. Uh, holding on for spite, I think, is actually it, like spite might actually be a good thing in okay. this in this sort of case, right? And it's the mental disorder sort of makes itself sideways, but be spiteful in order to just. And part of it is spiting oneself, right? If someone hates oneself so much, I'm speaking a little bit out of experience as well. Is just like if you're like hold on, hold on to spite yourself, then or hold on to spite yourself and then help others, which is a it's a hard task, right? It's an impossible task, I think. But also, so is all of life. It's just an impossible task one after another. And I think it's that mood disorder sort of attunes people to this idea that life is the hardest thing that you'll ever do. It's a thing that you have to constantly keep doing, cho- making choices and constantly the frustration of realizing that you have to make choices again and again, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to have to eat again. I'm going to have to do all of these other things again. That's why the existentialist tradition is, is so fascinating to me or is so useful to me. It's like that idea of Sisyphus, I have to roll this up again. I have to do it again and I have to figure it out. And I'm just going to hold on out of spite, to spite myself even. When you hear in the news that a celebrity has committed suicide, like Anthony Bourdain, yeah. um, and people will say, we had no idea. When people have that kind of a response, doesn't that actually highlight a misunderstanding of this in the first place. Yeah. What yeah. are we what are we missing when somebody does take that path and everybody says, I thought they were so happy or I just saw them? That means we are misunderstanding what mental illness is and what it is to have it. Yeah. So Yeah. There are plenty of campaigns to short sort of show the faces of depression and uh-huh. just show just like here's a happy person, here's a sad or like the faces, right? Yeah. Our typical understanding of people's outward selves without knowing their interiority or something like that. Yeah, a lot of seemingly happy people are depressed or have depression or are often putting on a show mm-hmm. in order to hide that. And that's part of the reason why I think that open testimony is really important. The testimony, yes. Right? Because that's also a survivalism issue. Okay. Or it's also a safety issue. If you're open and honest about it, then you can actually seek help. But most often people sort of put on that bad faith picture of, no, everything's fine. Yeah. I'm fine. Just fine. Okay. Don't ask me anything. And yeah, we have that all the time of this sort of like, I never knew. Mm -hmm. And that... To a certain extent, that means that you never really knew the person. The person never trusted you to be open about it. Oh, and I, wow. And I think that there is a need to be Maybe that's receptive. part of the pain. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. part of the pain. Wow. Yeah. Well, There's a lack of trust in other people. So let's say, what is a book that somebody who is not in academia, what is something that is accessible? Can you think of something that's accessible for people to... <laughs> <laughs> or the cartoon on Netflix. What was the cartoon? Uh, Bojack Horseman. Well, I mean, the the problem with Bojack Horseman. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll spoil it for you. He just he all he does is he self destructs. Right. Okay. It's just watching a self destruction. Okay. What's interesting though is just recently, uh, the same artist that's behind mm-hmm. it created her own show. It's a, a Bojack Horseman is created by Raphael Bob Wasberg who he created it, but he included, it's the artistic direction of an artist that's a friend of his by the name of Lisa Hannawalt. And and Lisa Hannawalt, because of the success of Bojack Horseman, Uh ended up creating a different show that's also about mental illness, right, essentially, or like two very complicated and depressed characters where it's, they're two birds this time, right, as opposed to horses, but it's called Tuca and Birdie, where it's, it's a little more uplifting. It's something that builds, it constructs. And I think that that construction is something that's more important. 
perhaps, as much as I love BoJack Horseman. But BoJack Horseman is someone who just destroys himself, right? <laughs> and that's the reason we're watching this. And we it, like it's that same sort of like nihilistic porn that we just keep watching on TV all the time now. Mm-hmm. Like Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, BoJack. Like we just want to see things like pretty people die or like good things destroy themselves. And that's what BoJack. I Horseman just started is about. Chernobyl. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, how is that? I I haven't. I. I mean, it's a destruction. Didn't it start out bleak though? Like it's a very bleak town before before the leak. You know, it dawned on me because. But we love this because you know being here at the conference. This is kind of my last presenting the papers. My last academic project for a while. I can take a bit of a hiatus. Work on the podcast, and I thought. I just can't wait to get home and watch Chernobyl. What does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Are I'm you like, maybe depressed? Oh my gosh, I am Did not depressed, but I'm like, yeah. what's that mean? Yeah. But also, no, I also but read also a lot the, of mystery yeah. books. That also helps me yeah. relax. But we love it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. And, you know, the success of My Favorite Murder as a, oh, yeah. as a podcast, right? Yeah. We love destructive things. I think that this conversation might generate a lot of questions and further inquiry so yeah. how can people get in touch with you um, or what is your twitter or your instagram yeah. um my twitter and my instagram are both the same and they're both related to my dissertation so it's mood m-o-o-d underscore adrift a-d-r-i-f-t okay so at mood uh, mood adrift all right well thank you yep. thank you thanks for the <laughs> opportunity you. 